The bottom line is you don't get this disease for no reason, um, but typically you get it for multiple reasons. And we typically identify 10 to 25 different contributors for most people. So when we were back doing the biochemistry of this, looking at, okay, what are all the things that change this signaling in your synaptic structure? And we found, ah, oh, there are things that are inflammatory and all these different things that can change it. Then we realized, okay, you have to look. It is root cause medicine, right? We have to look. What is it that's driving? We know when someone comes in with cognitive decline, we know a priori, they're on the wrong side of that balance. So we need to discover why. So we measure all these different things. We measure your hormone status and your inflammation status and your, your gut leakiness and, and all the things that contribute to that change. And then we use a personalized, and we actually uh, wrote a, a, a computer-based algorithm that goes through this and looks at all the different things and says, okay, here's your major subtype, here's your minor subtype, here are the things in your case that are driving your cognitive decline or your risk for cognitive decline. And we call this recode program. So this is reversal of cognitive decline. And it looks at all these different things and then designs for each person a program. Welcome back to The Better Podcast with yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima. This show is for high-performing women who want better bodies, better minds, better relationships, better sex, and better families, and want to hear from a woman that can take the complex science and make it easy to integrate into everyday life. Every week, I'll be giving you access to world-class scientists, medical doctors, plastic surgeons, professional athletes, Olympic gold medalists, Hollywood actors, parenting coaches, sex experts, and psychologists. I am always looking to answer this question. What are the simplest things that we can do today to get better tomorrow? I am part geek, part magic, and it is my mission to be the voice for women. Let's get better together. Hello, ladies and germs. Tis me, your host, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and welcome back to The Better Podcast. I'm so happy that you are here. And today I have my conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen here for you, and we're going to be talking about all things Alzheimer's. Just before we do that, though, I wanted to share with you a review that came in this week on the uh, Apple Podcasts from Sask. SHR manager. And I have to tell you, this review of the podcast made me cry. So I wanted to share that with you. The title of the review is called It's All Here, Ladies. And she says, I've realized that a huge part of my personal and spiritual developmental journey in the last few years is understanding, tuning in, and listening to my body. After a very long time of having more questions than answers, enter the better podcast with Dr. Stephanie. Her knowledge, experience, and talent for engagement mixed with her guest's zone of genius has created all the ahas and the goosebumps. It is my number one stop for being better as a high-performing woman who wants to be of better service to others. Thank you, Dr. Stephanie. Well, I just have to thank you because I want to thank you for noticing. And I really, I have to, I, I cried when I saw this. I was like, oh my God, she gets it. This girl gets what I'm about. So I, I just wanted to highlight that review. It really made my 
week, truly. And I hope that I'm going to be making your week this week with our conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. So as I mentioned, he is an expert in Alzheimer's. Uh, A little bit of background on Dr. Bredesen. He received his undergraduate degree from Caltech and his medical degree from Duke. He served as a resident and chief resident in neurology at UCSF, and then was a postdoctoral fellow in the laboratory of the Nobel laureate uh, Professor Stanley Presner. He was faculty member at the U- from uh, UCLA from 1989 to 1994, and then recruited by the Burnham Institute to direct the program on aging. In 1998, he became the founding president and CEO of the Buck Institute for Research on Aging and an adjunct professor at UCSF. So what we talked about today, I have to tell you, Alzheimer's, when I think about Alzheimer's, this is the disease. I would rather get any other disease than this one because this one erases your life, man. It is the scariest disease that I can think of to erase your memories and the things that you've experienced. And I would just rather have anything else other than this. So We started off with a definition of what Alzheimer's is and what it is not. Uh, What are the characteristics and what are the pathological distinguishing features around Alzheimer's disease? We talked about amyloid precursor proteins. So we get a little nerdy in this podcast. So I want you to check out the show notes uh, if you need some guidance or some definitions and some diagrams and all my notes there. Uh, So we talked about APP, amyloid precursor protein. We talked about the uh, classifications of Alzheimer's. So he has several different classifications, different silos. So we have the inflammatory, non-inflammatory, toxicity, associated vascular, traumatic. We go through all of those. We go through glycotoxic, uh, which is sort of a combination or amalgamation of type one and two. And we talk about the difference between amnestic and non-amnestic symptoms. So the ability when we see MCI, mild cognitive impairment, subjective cognitive impairment, what age do these things start at? And contrasting between amnestic and non-amnestic is really sort of differences in the areas of the brain that are being affected. So when we think about amnestic, he talks about this being more temporal and uh, spatial uh, memory and declarative memory, facial recognition, those things begin to get affected. Non-amnestic is more of a parietal issue. So we start to see issues with like organization, you know, trying to calculate a tip, for example, at a restaurant, he uses that as, as an example. We get into his definition of cognoscopy, a clever uh, borrowing from colonoscopy, although it is not the same procedure, talking about getting your uh, looking at biomarkers every year, looking at our figuring out what our APOE status is, and then looking at our toxin status, nutrient issues, um, glycated hemoglobin. He goes through the whole list and why those are all important. We get into a discussion around genetics. So uh, the APOE4 gene has been of intense focus as it relates to the Alzheimer's uh, progression as a genetic risk factor. So we talk a little bit about that, what APOE4 plays in metabolism. So lipid metabolism, our ability to metabolize the fats, uh, what type of fats and how that affects our brain health. And then we go on to have a discussion around his protocol, which he calls the Keto Flex 12-3. And very honestly, this sounds very similar to the Estima diet, but it is a protocol for eating a ketogenic diet, which many, if you speak to many neurologists across the board, lots of neurologists like the keto diet for brain health. And there is a reason for that. So we talk about keto, we talk about intermittent fasting, and we talk about how the 
uh, how his protocol can help with Alzheimer's uh, prevention and just at least slow uh, the puppy down, but in many cases, uh, reversal as well. And then we get into a conversation around supplementation, which I was really happy to do with a medical doctor. You often see supplementation. I love supplements. I talk about supplements all the time. But you often get this sort of poo-pooing on supplements. Well, they're not medication. Well, they're not this. Well, they're not efficacious because of this and this reason. And uh, Dr. Bredesen talks very candidly about how he was even, you know, kind of made fun of by his own colleagues around the idea that supplementation should be an integral part of uh, an Alzheimer's protocol. So very, very dense discussion. I really enjoyed this discussion. Of course, you know I'm all about brain health. I love talking about some of the proxies that we can use to improve our brain function. And I wanted to uh, mention to you, if you were interested in finding out more about the ketogenic diet, we have all the notes for Dr. Bredesen's material in the show notes. You can also go to estimadiet.com. That's E-S-T-I-M-A. D-I-E-T.com. And there is a really juicy masterclass in there. I give you all my best stuff in like 18 minutes. So it's not a huge time investment on your part, but you will get the basics around how to do the ketogenic diet, particularly for women. And this is very true for Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is primarily a female disease. We see this happening at an incidence much higher in women than we do in men. And this is something that I want to work to eradicate. So you can go to the Estima Diet, uh, sorry, estimadiet.com. There's no the in there to find out more. All right, my friends, my family, let's go on to the show. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Dale Bredesen. And I'm so excited to welcome you to the Better Podcast. Welcome. Thanks very much, Dr. Stephanie. Great to be here. I, I wanted to bring you on the podcast. We were just talking a little bit in the pre-chat because I wanted to discuss the idea of brain health and healthy brain aging, particularly as it relates to uh, cognitive decline and Alzheimer's disease. And there's, you know, myself included, I was just telling you, I live in a major city, lots of, lots of uh, pollution, and there's things that we are all doing that may be contributing to poor brain aging, uh, to cognitive decline. And of course, I'm in my 40s now. The women that I work with are in my 40s. So this is a great area of interest and, and focus for me. So I'm, I'm thrilled to have you on. And I thought we could maybe start our discussion today with your explanation of what Alzheimer's disease is, and importantly as well, what it is not. So some of the characteristics, some of the pathological distinguishing features of the disease. Yeah, it's a great point. And you know, uh, people have always talked about this problem, which is now the third leading cause of death in the United States uh, after cardiovascular disease and cancer, a huge issue and growing. Uh, and they've always talked about this as a disease of your 60s, 70s, and 80s. What it's turned out with the research is that this actually begins, the changes in the brain begin about 20 years before a diagnosis. So that thing that we always thought about as a disease of your 60s and 70s and 80s is really a disease of your 40s, 50s, and 60s that gets diagnosed in your 60s, 70s, and 80s. So in fact, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. And there are fundamental changes, as you know. Everyone's talking about brain health and brain aging, uh, but there are all sorts of ideas, that, some, some of which uh, have support and some of which don't have support. 
So we have studied this in the laboratory for 30 years and we looked at the fundamental nature of the process because here you have the area of medicine that is the area of greatest biomedical therapeutic failure. As they say, everyone knows a cancer survivor, no one knows an Alzheimer's survivor, or a Lou Gehrig survivor, or a Lewy body survivor, or a frontotemporal dementia survivor, and you can just go right down the list. It's been the area where we failed. So my laboratory colleagues and I set out 30 years ago to see if we could understand the fundamental nature of this process. Why is it so common? Why has it been so difficult to treat? Why is it that so many drug trials, over 400 drug trials have failed uh, with, at a cost of, of billions of dollars? And we just, you know, we hear about one after the other, after the other, another failure. And in some cases, of course, the drugs have actually made things worse, uh, worse than taking nothing. So uh, looking at this over the years, what we were surprised to see is that what we call Alzheimer's disease is actually a protective response. You are literally responding to specific insults that your brain has and your body has. And so it really does fit. And I have to say this, this went again all, against all the stuff that I learned in medical school. This is not a simple illness like pneumococcal pneumonia where you diagnose it, you give a, a drug and it gets better. This is something that is coming on. It is a complex chronic illness. It is coming on for years ahead of time. And there are dozens and dozens of contributors. And you can literally trace the molecular pathways, which we did over the years, and show that at the heart of this is a beautiful molecular switch that responds to everything from your ongoing systemic inflammation, to your insulin resistance, to your glycotoxicity, to your hormonal levels, to your trophic factor levels, to exposure to various toxins. You can see how these all impact on this central switch. And therefore, when we treat it, we address all of those things. And what is that central switch? Is that the amyloid uh, precursor protein? Is that what we're talking about? Right, here? right. And so, you know, the, 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 the central thing that's actually, it's literally looking at these things in real time. Um, and that is called, as you said, APP, the amyloid precursor protein. And that is the parent molecule for amyloid beta. So when we talk about amyloid in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's, the amyloid is a tiny little piece of the amyloid precursor protein. So the amyloid precursor protein uh, is, uh, is 751, uh, 695, et cetera. It's, it's got a couple of different pieces, but it's hundreds of amino acids long. And the tiny little piece that makes amyloid is there's a 40 and there's a 42 and a 43. Um, so they're very, it's a tiny little piece of this overall protein. And things like your estradiol level and your testosterone level and your vitamin D level, all these things trace direct pathways to impacting your APP. So this thing sits there and when things are good, when you're not under assault, when you're doing well, when you don't have a lot of stress, when your hormones are, are optimized, when your vitamins, nutrients, trophic factors are optimized, when there's not a lot of inflammation, etc., this APP is cleaved at a single site that's called the alpha site. 
and that produces two peptides, SAPP-alpha and alpha-CTF, and these things actually signal to your cells, things are good, go ahead and make synapses. You literally are making and keeping memories. They support neuroplasticity. On the other hand, when things are bad, that same molecule, APP, is cut now at three different sites, beta, gamma, and caspase, leaving you with four peptides, and those are literally telling your cells, we are under assault. We've got, uh, you know, we've got ongoing inflammation. We've got pathogens that are invading the brain. As you know, P. gingivalis from, from the mouth can enter the brain. Lyme organism, Borrelia, can enter the brain. Various fungi have been identified in the brain, often coming from your sinuses, for example. Candida, interestingly, can enter your brain. So on and on and on, when your brain senses these, it is literally fighting them. A-beta, for example, is an antimicrobial peptide. So you are fighting these things. It's also, by the way, a very strong metal binding protein. So you want to expose your brain to a lot of mercury or copper or iron, it will now make this amyloid to bind these things. So it is trying to protect itself, literally downsizing. It's a little bit as if, if you are the head of a country and you've now got people coming into the country, you're trying to kill them because they are invading you. If you put down napalm, you now have less arable soil in your country. So you are literally saying, look, I'm going to operate with a slightly smaller neural network so that I can fight these things. And by the way, the other thing that, uh, that amyloid does very well is serve as a barrier. Uh, so you're literally putting this barrier down, you're downsizing, and this is why people actually do quite well for the 20 years. So it's buying you time, but unfortunately, it's also beginning a process that later on will be late in the process and you will really, you will have Alzheimer's disease. This is why for everybody, we recommend that as you hit 45, just as you get a colonoscopy when you're 50, get a cognoscopy when you're 45. Get your, there's a simple lab set that you can get with a cognoscopy and you can see where do I stand and how is my mentation? Am I in the earliest phases of this disease? The reality is nobody should get this disease. This should be a truly rare disease. Yeah, and I, I have to say, I was so happy to have you on here because I, when I think of Alzheimer's, it is the single most frightening disease that, that I am aware of because it, it attacks your what I think is your most important asset, which is your memory, you know, like these are, you know, your most precious of assets is your life. And it, you know, there's no, when you say it should be rare, it, it should be rare. I agree with you. And when we see the prevalence, like it, it'll take you down irrespective of your socioeconomic status, whether or not you can, you know, get by healthcare. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor. I mean, it erases your life. And this is why I wanted you on today. I remember I, I have a, of course, I, it's sad to say, I think most people have some sort of story that is attached to Alzheimer's. My great aunt, she went from, you know, not, 
she couldn't remember why she started the sentence like she, or she couldn't get the word out. Like the word was in her brain and just couldn't get down, uh, you know, her efferents, um, uh, couldn't get down to her, to the, to the muscles in her mouth to not even recognize, like had no idea who I was, no. was my, my grandmother's sister. So, um, I want to talk about, uh, a cognoscopy, uh, actually, let, let's talk about the cognoscopy. This is, uh, I, I think that's such an intelligent word, by the way. I'm a big word nerd, so I love when there's new words that are created that make a lot of sense. So if you are somebody who is in their 30s or their 40s and their 50s, wanting to, whether they have a history of it in their family or they're just someone who's taking prophylactic measures, what are some biomarkers that we can be monitoring, that are that we can monitor over time, that can give us a sense of how we are doing. Yeah, and first of all, let me say that a cognoscopy is much less unpleasant than a colonoscopy. <laughs> yes. So it's actually uh, you know easy to do. Yeah. Uh, I've I've been told a few times, oh, that's a horrible word, cognoscopy. It it uh, it brings up these horrible images, but it's actually quite benign and actually very helpful for you. So what you really want to know, there are three things. And in fact, if you're completely asymptomatic and you're doing well, you only need two of them. So number one, you want to know specific biochemistry and genetics. So a simple blood test, right? You want to know the things that are contributing to potential cognitive decline. And a few years ago, our research led to the discovery of different subtypes of Alzheimer's. So some people will get it mostly because of inflammation. Some people will get it mostly because of insulin resistance and glycotoxicity. Some people will get it mostly because of reduction in hormones, trophic factors, or nutrients. Some people because of toxic exposures, and those can be metallotoxins, organic toxins, or biotoxins some people because of vascular compromise, and some people because of trauma. So those are the big ones, that's it. So you wanna look at those things. So we want to know your various hormonal levels. We want to know your fasting insulin. We want to know your fasting glucose, your hemoglobin A1C. We wanna know your HSCRP. Then we wanna know your various organic toxins, your biotoxins, and your metallotoxins and we want to know what your vascular status is. These are relatively straightforward, as you know, and unfortunately, most doctors are not checking these things. The future of medicine, 21st century medicine, as you know very well, is about larger data sets, is about seeing these chronic illnesses before they overtake us. The good news is we have a very large window where we can intervene. So please don't wait, you know, get in early. Everyone should be on prevention or the earliest reversal. In the past, people said, oh, if it's early Alzheimer's, there's nothing I can do anyway, so I might as well not get checked out. I'll just wait late, late, later until things are impossible. That's just the opposite of what we wanna do. Right. We wanna get in as early as possible. So second thing is you want a, an online cognitive screening. Very simple, takes about 15 minutes. Uh, we do this through CNS Vital Signs, but you can do it other ways. Having a MOCA score is good. And then the third thing, if you have symptoms, you should also have an MRI with volumetrics. But if you're not having symptoms, don't worry about the MRI. You can get the first two things. Very simple to do. And this will then get you on the path to prevention or early reversal. 
So let's let's go a little bit deeper with that. Can you? So you talked about HbA1c. So this is uh, for the listener. What that is uh, essentially measuring is the average amount of glycation that you've had over the last two to three months. Like red blood cells, you know, two to three months is there is there uh, the time that they live. And when we're talking about glycation, of course, we're talking about a sugar which is either a glu- in the form of glucose or fructose attaching to a protein or a lipid. Right. So the HbA1c is basically going to tell us how much glycation or the average amount of blood sugar essentially uh, we've had over the last three months. What is the, what is the level that you, if, if you were to talk about ideal ranges, and I, and I ask this because sometimes lab ranges will come back as normal. Like they'll say, you know, regular blood sugar, you know, blood glucose is under a hundred milligrams per deciliter. And if you come to me as a, as a practitioner, I'm going to tell you, no, no, it's not hundred. It's it, you got to be under 85. Um, right. because we know, I mean, and a very simple example of this would be, you know, a heart, you know, what is considered, and I'm using air quotes here. If you're just listening to this, like 60 to hundred beats per minute is considered normal, but we know that someone's heart who's beating at a hundred beats per minute versus someone's heart who's beating six. I mean, that heart is working 67% harder, right? It's 40 more beats per minute. So there's a, there's a very large range in what I think a conventional lab will say, well, this is a normal result. I tend to have a much tighter, I mean, I'm just a pain in the butt, but you know, do you have, do you have, you know, for the HbA1c, for example, is there, is there a range that you're willing to accept? Is it under five? Like what, what is the number that you like to see there? Absolutely. And we have this entire thing is in, is in the book that I published, which is now out in 32 languages. Uh, and so we have a table that shows every single one of these. And you're absolutely right. A central concept in 21st century medicine is that this idea of WNL, quote, within normal limits. Uh, people sometimes laugh and call it, we never looked. But whatever, <laughs> you know, whatever you believe WNL is, yeah. is, is not a physiological number. It is rather a statistical number. So it simply says, this is what is within two standard deviations of the mean. That has nothing to do with the way your body works. So you're absolutely right. And a simple example is homocysteine, where it's normal, quote, up to 12. But anything above six, so as you drift up 8, 9, 10, 11, you, there's a beautiful study out of the UK showing that your rapidity of shrinkage of your brain's gray matter goes up linearly as you increase this uh, homocysteine. So in the case of hemoglobin A1c, as you mentioned, we would like to see you between 4.0 and 5.2. Now, as you know, when you get to 5.7, by definition, that is pre-diabetes. Yep. Um, and as you drift up now to the mid-sixes, now, now you have diabetes. But we'd like to see you not at 5.4 or 5 or 6, but rather down 5.2, down to 4.0. That is where you function better, and it lowers your risk for Alzheimer's. And of course, similarly, we'd like to see your fasting insulin down around 4 or 5, not up around 10 or 15, which is still considered normal, but is highly suboptimal. And do you do OGTTs or do you look at fasting uh, uh, blood glucose as well? 
Yeah, great question. Yeah, we do look at fasting glucose because that's part of the HOMA IR. So we calculate HOMA IRs on everybody because that's probably the best simple measure for insulin resistance. Um, and that's simply, as you know, your fasting glucose times your fasting uh, insulin divided by 405.45. So that'll give you a number. Your HOMA IR should be down around one. You don't wanna be up at two or three. Uh, you have significant insulin resistance when you're up there. Uh, so we do measure it. Now we typically don't do on the first pass uh, glucose tolerance testing, but unless you've got a strong family history and you're specifically concerned. But you're right, that is the most sensitive way to look at the earliest insulin resistance. And of course, insulin resistance, huge contributor to Alzheimer's disease. And one of the things, and I'll just add a little clinical pearl here, and I, I don't know if you'll appreciate this or not, but I, I also like to look at context. So I also like to look at postprandial glucose. So if someone has a fasting uh, glucose, let's call it, um, I don't know, 75 milligrams uh, per deciliter. Say we both have the same you know, amount of blood glucose before we have a meal. And you know, two hours after your blood glucose is down to 100, it's you know, around 120 milligrams per deciliter and mine's around 140 or 145. You know, right. we, we can start off the same, but if yeah. my insulin glucose dance, as I like to call it, is off, right? At 140, I mean, that's when we start to get destruction of the beta cells. Uh, we start to see ner you know, nerve damage, retinopathy, all this kind of stuff. So I also like to, and you may or may not uh, do this or practice this, but I also like to, for women, when I'm first starting to work with them, I want to know what the fasting glucose level is. And then I also want to know how they respond to a meal. Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And as you know, something that's been very helpful is the CGM, the continuous glucose monitoring. Yes. And especially because glucose plays such an important role in cognitive decline, uh, both on the Alzheimer's side and the vascular side, and of course, vascular damage is turning out to play a role in Alzheimer's. We used to think that these things were completely separate, vascular dementia, Alzheimer's dementia. It's turning out that there is a lot of overlap and they contribute to each other. So uh, the, the idea of continuous glucose monitoring, whether you like Freestyle Libre from Abbott or whether you like something else, these things are very helpful and they can give you a look and they can also give you some feedback. Hey, when you ate that thing that you thought was very healthy, guess what happened? Your glucose skyrocketed. Yeah. The other thing that you see on these is as people go to bed, they will plummet. And so they'll wake up at three or 4 a.m. because their glucose has gotten down to 50. And that's because they, you know, they haven't smoothened it out. They're not getting the appropriate high fat, low carb diet. So now they're responding to their high carb intake and dropping this. And of course, that damages your brain as well. So th these are really critical parameters to know for best outcomes. Wonderfully said. And let's talk a little bit about the uh, classifications. You had mentioned them uh, briefly in terms of the classifications of different types of Alzheimer's. I don't think people recognize or realize that it's not, there's not just one etiology. It's not just, uh, you know, I mean, I know that we're calling, there's been a lot of talk around calling Alzheimer's uh, type three diabetes. And we can talk about that uh, in your book, you talk about that sort of one type 1.5, that glycotoxic um, classification. But can you unpack for, for us the different types of classifications of the disease and where it comes from? Yeah, that's a really good point. Uh, and that's been one of the issues. As you know, people say, well, why did this person get it when they're 48 and this person got it when they're 78? 
And you know, what's the difference? They don't look the same. They don't have similar numbers. What's the deal here? Uh, they don't have similar, you know, genetics. They don't have similar biochemistry. So why did these people both get quote the same disease? Well, so as we started studying this and looking at how how does this molecular switch in the middle work, APP? And I and I should add, by the way, people initially said, oh great, just prevent the switch from going the bad way. Well, guess what? Your body's not that stupid. Right. It finds ways. If if you're trying to protect yourself, it finds other ways. So it's not that simple. This is why one drug hasn't worked. You need a personalized precision medicine protocol. So the bottom line here is when we started looking at people's profiles, genetics and biochemistry, we started to see, oh, wait a minute, they actually sort into different groups. So there will be people whose primary driver of this APP being on the wrong side of the balance, literally you're talking about synaptoblastic making synapses, versus synaptoclastic, pulling back on the synapses, much like you'd talk about osteoporosis as being an imbalance between osteoblastic and osteoclastic signaling. This is a difference, an imbalance between synaptoblastic and synaptoclastic signaling. When we started to look at these people, we saw one group that was predominantly inflammatory. So they have high HSCRPs, they often have high interleukin-6, TNF-alpha, things like this. They're on fire. And that can be from uh, leaky gut, which is a common one. It can be from chronic sinusitis. It can be from metabolic syndrome, on and on. But that's their predominant problem. So you need to find out what's causing that inflammation. We, we hear so much about, oh, we should all be taking anti-inflammatories. Well, we should also understand why are we inflamed? What, what's actually doing this? Because this is about getting to the root cause. You know, th there's... 21st century medicine is really about one word, which is why. You know, why did this happen? You want to go as upstream as possible and keep asking why until you understand what went wrong. Then we found a separate group of people, um, and I should say the inflammatory people we call type 1 uh, or, or hot uh, uh, or inflammatory Alzheimer's. And then type 2 is atrophic. These are people that are typically a little older, they just don't have enough support from hormones, growth factors, or nutrients to support a large neural network. So if you literally add back, you optimize the support, they do much better. And then, as you mentioned, we have one we call type 1.5, which is the glycotoxin. And the reason we called it that is because it has features of both. As you indicated earlier, the glucose actually gets stuck. It's a non-enzymatic sticking. It's like remoras on a shark. You stick onto multiple proteins, and we measure it, of course, as hemoglobin A1C, but it's, there are lots and lots of other proteins. It alters their function, and it alters their antigenicity. So now you get an inflammatory state responding to this, quote, abnormal protein. Mm -hmm. But in addition, you also, because of the high insulin, respond poorly to insulin signaling. And insulin is one of the most important growth factors in your brain. And therefore, when you're no longer responding to that, you don't get the support for your brain that you did. So you have both features of inflammation and features of an atrophic response. So that's why it's type 1.5 or glycotoxic or sweet Alzheimer's. Uh, and so you mentioned earlier so-called you know, type 3 diabetes. Yes, that's certainly relevant for Alzheimer's. But as you can see, there's more to Alzheimer's than just that. Mm -hmm. Then the type 3 people, 
uh, we initially didn't know about them and we started having people who were failing on the treatment of the other things, of the glycotoxicity, the inflammation, and the trophic loss. And we wondered, you know, who are these people? What's going on here? And I actually started calling the spouses and started to talk about you know, what happened in their childhoods and what happened. And we realized these were people who had very high toxic exposures or were very poor at dealing with toxic exposures. And this, as I mentioned earlier, can be metals like mercury, can be uh, organics, uh, and they can be things like propylene oxide or formaldehyde or uh, toluene, people who've been lots of exposure to paraffin candle burning, for example. Um, people uh, too much exposure to uh, you know, chemical uh, uh, factories. Uh, we had the question recently about whether even uh, too much exposure to things like laser, you know, being very close to laser printers. You know, this is all still being worked out. We'll see. But these are things that had never been considered before. We just say, oh, it's Alzheimer's. We don't know what's causing it, mm. uh, which makes no sense. We're now beginning to understand the, the uh, various contributors. And then, of course, a big one that surprised me was mycotoxins, people who live around specific species of molds. And it's not all molds. So there, there are a lot of molds that, are not, that aren't making these mycotoxins, or there are a lot of people that aren't responding. But about a quarter of the population, as Dr. Richie Shoemaker has pointed out for years, tend to be quite sensitive to these things. And these can be things like trichothecenes or aflatoxin or ochratoxin A. These are toxins that are quite bad for your body. And when you respond to them, you develop an inflammatory state. You activate your innate immune system, your, the old, the evolutionarily older part of your immune system. But interestingly, they are also immunosuppressive. So you're not so good at activating the adaptive system. So you live with this chronic activation for years and years, and you ultimately damage your brain. And by the way, the amyloid that we talk about in Alzheimer's um, is part of the innate immune system. So anything that gives you a chronic inflammatory state is going to have you making this amyloid and downsizing over the years. So that's what we call type 3 or toxic. Alzheimer's. Uh, and then type four is vascular, people who have uh, poor vascular support. Uh, and this includes, by the way, people who have poor oxygenation at night. So I recommend anybody who is concerned about cognitive decline or is experiencing some, experiencing some cognitive decline, please, please make sure to check your nocturnal oximetry. Just, you can get a sleep study, that's fine, or just borrow from your doctor or buy one yourself, a little oximeter, stick it on your finger overnight and check to see where you stand. Because if you're dropping down, you should be in the 96 to 98% saturation while you're sleeping at night. And we have people dropping into the low 70s, which is really scary. Um, and these people are contributing to their own cognitive decline without knowing it, and their doctors aren't typically checking it. And then the last one, type five, is, uh, is traumatic. So if you have a history of head trauma, whether it's from playing football, whether it's, it's from uh, you know, many, many headings of the ball with soccer, all these things have been shown. You know, traffic accidents, what have you, they increase your risk for cognitive decline. 
There was that movie with Will Smith. Yeah, Concussion. Footballer. That's it, Concussion. And they were showing the Tao tangles from the... Yeah, that was a wonderful, uh, love that movie. Just a comment about the oximeter, that was standard. So when I had my brick and mortar uh, practice, that was standard intake and we would take everyone's uh, oxygen level saturation, you know, no matter what time of day. But there was a couple of patients where I was like, I need you to buy one of these puppies and be looking at this over the course of the day. Because in the morning, let's say I had an initial with this patient at nine o'clock, their oxygen saturation in the morning, which is when it should be at its highest, yeah. was at 94, 93. And we know that your, your oxygen levels, uh, your saturation levels drop uh, in the evening. So I was like, you need to get this puppy. You need to be watching it. And then I want you to go for walks. I want there to be diaphragmatic breathing, all these different things to help uh, with oxygen saturation, even stomach, breathe, uh, stomach sleeping we talked about as well uh, with these patients too. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, I have to, to say again, I've been become a fan. I'm, I'm agnostic, whatever works for patients. And we've just had some absolutely, as you know, tremendous people responding, reversing cognitive decline. We described, we published the first cases of cognitive decline back in 2014, uh, another uh, group in 2016, and then 2018, we published 100 patients with documented reversal of cognitive decline. So one of the things that's been interesting people have responded to is called EWOT, exercise with oxygen therapy. And I'm sure you're aware of this. People hop on a bike uh, and typically only 15 or 20 minutes a day um, with 100% oxygen. And there's also a variation where you go hyperoxygen, then you know, hypoxic and hyperoxic. Um, these are turning out to be quite interesting and do support. Again, they're, they're getting to your brain and saying, yes, we recognize you're not quite getting an optimal level of support. So we're going to help you with this and overall give you better support. And people typically respond very well to that. What say you on oxygen deprivation? So there's some of those masks. Um, I forget that I have one in my on my bike. It's hanging on my bike, and I put it on, and it can like lower the level. It's altitude. Tra- it's an altitude training yeah. mask. That's the name. Yeah, of it. yeah. This yeah. is like a, this yeah. is like the Live O2 approach where you have. Yeah. So the one thing I would say is, if you're symptomatic, go with the high oxygen first, and then start to do this. If you're not symptomatic, you're right. This is a this is another part of hormesis. And you know we're doing hormesis where you're giving a slight insult and then you're allowing your body to recover and be stronger. Um, so it just goes back to uh, you know to, to the old uh, uh, the old quote. You know what doesn't kill me makes makes me stronger. Yeah. But you want to be very careful with that, especially if you're at risk for cognitive decline because each time you stress the system, remember if you overstress it, you are gonna begin to lose some synapses. So I would give it support and then give yourself a mild and then work into it, giving yourself a mild insult. Yeah, that's a nice conservative approach. I appreciate that. Do you see see any differences in frequency of type across the sexes? Do you you see that, and, and females I know are more typically affected with Alzheimer's in terms of the, you know, in terms of gender dimorphism, where we see more women that are diagnosed with Alzheimer's. But in terms of the type, I mean, I've been listening to you talk about the different classifications, and I would almost think that they would almost certainly more fall into type that type two, that non-inflammatory atrophic because of, you know, going through menopause and the changes in estrogen and progesterone. Um, 
But also I see a lot of women with metabolic derangement, like they have insulin regulation issues. They're not metabolically flexible, which I want to talk about yeah. in terms of generating ketones with you. But yeah. do, you, do you find that there's a, do women tend to fall into one or more types more frequently than the others? It's a great point. And as Maria Shriver and others have pointed out, uh, Alzheimer's unfortunately is a woman-centric disease, uh, nearly two to one. And of course, about 60% of caretakers as well. So it is really a woman-centric disease. And on the other hand, Parkinson's um, is a 1.8 to 1 for men. So it's a more common man's disease. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're absolutely right. Um, this is an issue. And where we really see the big difference is in the type 3 people. Uh, so with the inflammatory people, you can be on, you know, of course, you can be inflamed, you can be, and, and, and yes, I should mention, these do look different. The typical type one case is a kind of a 65-year-old man um, who's eaten bad for years, who's got, a, you know, who's got a little extra around the middle, uh, is eating the standard American diet, uh, has got a leaky gut, has got metabolic syndrome, and is starting to, you know, is starting to decline because of the ongoing inflammation. Uh, the typical uh, type uh, 1.5 is, you know, is typical someone with prediabetes or type 2 diabetes, and that can be a man or a woman. Uh, and, uh, and then the type 2s, the type 2s are more female, as you said. What happens is, as you decrease the support, the trophic support for your brain, it's the rapid deceleration that is more dangerous. So whereas during the andropause, you get this slow decline of testosterone, during menopause, you, in some people, get a very rapid decline in estrogen, and that is a problem. So in the typical type two patient is a 73 or 75-year-old woman who has no estrogen, and of course has not had years for years, um, did not go on BHRT, and now is beginning because of a lack of support. Uh, often will have low vitamin D, low pregnenolone, low DHEA, low B12, uh, often some high homocysteine as well. Now they don't have such an inflammatory state. They have an atrophic state. And so interestingly, they'll often say to you, well, I feel okay. Yeah, they're not inflamed. But, and, and they'll often come in and say, hey, I can still play tennis, I can still drive my car, I can still do everything, I just can't learn anything new, I can't remember. So as you're starting to, to downsize that, literally your brain is saving the most important things, how to do your job, how to speak, how to understand, how to calculate, those sorts of things. But you, it, it is sacrificing the ability, the neuroplasticity to make the new synapses. And again, if you think about it, it's a, it's a beautiful program, actually, because if someone said to you, okay, you know, Dr. Stephanie, you've got to either tomorrow morning, you're either going to wake up and you're going to uh, forget how to speak or how to work or how to understand, or you're going to forget the Friends rerun from tonight. You can see you don't need as much the new memories as you do the things. Your brain is deciding what is the most important for you. And you see the opposite of that in type three. And this is where we've seen a lot of women in their 50s. When I was training back in the 80s in neurology, we never saw people in their 50s coming in with full-blown Alzheimer's disease. Now it's one of the most common things we see. And it is more, unfortunately, it is more women than men. Uh, and what happens is when you get exposed to toxins, as you know, 
you sequester these. Your body deals with them in multiple ways. It tries to excrete them. This is why high fiber diets are so important. This is why filtered water, so helpful. This is why sweating and then following with Castile soap, so helpful. This is why keeping your glutathione optimized, so helpful, all these things. But over the years, your body will also sequester these. And so it sequesters these toxins in your brain, in your bones, in other areas to try to make it less toxic for your body. Now, what happens? You start to approach menopause and your osteoblastic to osteoclastic ratio changes. You have these so-called osteoclastic burst that lasts for about seven years. You also, by the way, have lower progesterone. Progesterone, as Dr. Chris Shade has pointed out, very important for detox. So for both of those reasons, you now are more sensitive to toxins. They start to empty out of your organs and empty out of your bones as you're now starting to have more osteoclastic activity. And the low progesterone is making it so you are less good at detoxing. And so now you are exposed to toxins. And so we see many, many people. The typical story is a 52-year-old woman who, and the doctors are surprised, oh my gosh, you know, we, don't, we didn't know what this was, we can't believe it's Alzheimer's, because they often present with an atypical type of Alzheimer's. They'll often have some depression. The HPA axis is often dysfunctional with this form of Alzheimer's, this type three. They'll turn out to have exposure to biotoxins, which they were able to deal with for a while, but now in menopause, they're not. And they start often with a non-amnestic presentation, so very different than typical Alzheimer's. The first thing will often be difficulty with organizing or calculating or recognition of faces or shapes or things like that. Your primary progressive aphasias fall into this category. The PCAs, posterior cortical atrophy, fall into this category. It's a change that is typically non-amnestic, and it is more common in women than men. And interestingly, this is the one where the genetics are a little different. In the other types, ApoE4 is an important player. In this one, you can get it as an ApoE4, but you can also get it as a non-ApoE4. So we often see people who are ApoE3-3s or 2-3s. And I should just parenthetically say, you know, ApoE4, most important genetic risk factor for Alzheimer's. If you have zero copies of ApoE4, in other words, you didn't get one from your mother or your father, your chance during your lifetime of Alzheimer's, about 9% or so. Single copy, uh, so you got it from your mother or your father, but not both, um, then that means about 30% through your lifetime. Two copies, you got one from each parent, uh, uh, upwards of 50% and approaching 90% in some people. Mm -hmm. So we want to get, there are 75 million Americans who have single copy. There are about 7 million Americans who have two copies. So it's very common. Uh, and there's a wonderful website, apoe4.info, started by Julie G, who is an apoe4 for herself, and by the way, doing absolutely beautifully uh, now. And uh, so there's a tremendous amount that can be done. We want to prevent this in everybody who is ApoE4 positive. 
So you mentioned, I want to, I'm going to, we're going to dive into April E4 in just a sec. Yeah. I want to just shelf that for a, a just a, yeah. suspended for a temporary moment. The non-amnestic, these are, is this in the brain, we're talking about the parietal lobes. This is where more of a parietal issue. Yeah. Interesting. You should say that. Yes. So in general, as you know, Alzheimer's is a temporal, largely a temporal parietal disease. So your frontal lobes, yes, they're affected, uh, not as much. Occipital lobes, yes, they're affected, not as much. Cerebellum, yes, it's affected, not as much. If you look at a PET scan and you look at where the energy has been reduced, it is in the temporal and parietal region, and it includes the precuneus, it includes the posterior cingulate, but it is largely a temporal parietal disease. And so you see a decrease there. And that's one of the reasons that ketosis is so important. You are now bringing back the energy to that part of the brain. But as you indicated, when you are presenting now with this type three, this non-amnestic, this is less about your temporal lobe and is much more about being a biparietal. Uh, by the way, they often will have some frontal uh, symptoms as well. So I often ask people, you know, are you having trouble making change? Are you having trouble paying bills? Are you having trouble uh, figuring a tip? Are you having trouble organizing things? So this one is actually much worse. It comes on earlier. It's often associated with depression. And you often, people will lose their jobs. As you know, people can do their jobs really well with a not too great of a memory. They may uh, hire an extra assistant. They may use their iPhones a little more, but they still have, their skill set is still tremendous and they're very good at organizing. That's your you know, type two and type one. The type threes, these people lose their jobs almost immediately because they simply can't organize. They can't figure out how to make their iPhones work. They can't figure out how to, how to organize functions and how to learn new things. Like if you've got a new you know, complicated computer or something, they have trouble setting those up. Uh, so that's why it's a very different look, this type three. And you've got to identify the toxins and you've got to remove them. And until then, the people won't do very well. Right. And so we have that, that's the type three non-amnestic. Yes. And just for, just for thoroughness, can we talk about the more common one, the amnestic type? This is going to be more temporal. Yeah. So, and, and I should say the, the amnestic is is common with the other types, less so with type three. So this is one of the things that we ask first. Is this mostly an amnestic presentation, which is typical Alzheimer's, or is this mostly a non-amnestic presentation, which is telling us, think seriously about type three. Now, you brought up a good point. When you have someone with type three who has APOE4, uh, then they do have some amnestic presentation as well. So we'll see, for example, a single copy APOE4 type 3 that'll have some difficulty with memory, but their big problem is calculation and, and uh, organization. Um, if the person is an APOE3-3 and has type 3, they'll often have a non-amnestic presentation. So whereas the type 1s and type 2s, they're kind of more typical Alzheimer's, they start with memory, that remains their big problem is learning new information. Um, and as I mentioned, like for the type 2 people, the atrophic ones, they're often quite good. You know, they're doing their jobs, they're playing tennis, they're driving their cars, um, they're feeling great, um, but they're just having trouble learning new things. These are all pathologically, quote, Alzheimer's, but you can see how different these things are, different people, different biochemistry, 
different genetics, different genders, and most importantly, different requirements to get better. You've yeah. got to look at what's actually causing the cognitive decline. It's no longer good enough. Just like when someone you know, comes in with hypertension, you want to know why do they have hypertension? You know, is it because of the fact that you know, they're staying up all night every night and they're under tremendous stress? Don't just write them a prescription and send them off because they're going to continue to do the wrong things. This right. is an insane thing in spades for cognitive decline. You need to get to the bottom of it. Yeah. And there's, there's often, uh, you know, jokes like, uh, I've heard silly jokes, like, why does this person have hypertension? Oh, it's because they don't have enough blood pressure reducing medication in their system. That's why. Right. right? Which is exactly. of course ludicrous. So let, let's, let's jump into APOE4. Uh, you've touched on it multiple times. Let's circle back to it now. As you said, the single biggest, uh, genetic indicator for risk, and you've outlined those risks, you know, I think you said one, uh, zero copies is 9% chance, one copy is 30%, and two copies is over 50%. That's right. So I know that lipid metabolism is incredibly complex. I don't pretend to know it all. I am still learning the nuances and the intricacies of it. But for the listener, can we talk high level in terms of what role does the apolipoprotein E, irrespective of allele, whether you have a two or three or a four uh, or any combination thereof, what is the role that APOE has in lipid metabolism as it relates to the, as it relates to the brain? Yeah. So, uh, you know, way, way back, way back when, um, about, this is about 50 years ago now, yeah, something like 50 years ago now, uh, Dr. Robert Maley, uh, and I believe he was then at the NIH, noticed that there was a protein that, you know, after you ate a fatty meal, the protein jumps up and there's a tremendous amount of this stuff in your blood. And this, he identified this has turned out to be APOE. It's a, it's a fat carrying protein. It carries the fats. It's a little bit like your butcher. You know, it carries the fats around. And you're, as you pointed out, why the heck would this have anything to do with Alzheimer's disease, what the heck does that have to do with a protein that carries around the fats? And so I'm, I'm glad you brought it up because it's so critically important. You can get it in you know, APOE 2, 3, or 4. Those are the major ones. And um, so we started a project in the laboratory uh, over a decade ago to ask that very question. You've got this, the canonical Alzheimer's, about two-thirds of people with Alzheimer's, are APOE4 positive, about one third are APOE4 negative, but there are 75 million Americans who are APOE4 positive, single copy, about seven million, two copies, and the rest of us, the three quarters of us in America, are APOE4 negative. So we started a, a project in the lab, you, get, you look at, you know, APOE4 is the beginning, Alzheimer's is the end, but nobody knew what's in the middle. They only knew that this APOE would bind to receptors. And there are several different receptors on cells to which this apolipoprotein will bind. And it will now internalize the fats that it's, that it's binding to. But what the heck does that have to do with Alzheimer's? And so to make a very long story very short, we found something really shocking, which is that the apolipoprotein, when it binds to these receptors, not, doesn't just come into your cell and just dump its fats off. It actually goes into the nucleus of the cell and it binds to your DNA at 1,700 different promoters. So what that means is 
it is affecting your genes, just like estradiol would, just like vitamin D would, just like thyroid would. These are all things that are going into your nucleus and changing the program. So the big surprise was the butcher, APOE, is also your senator. It's not just carrying fat, it's also making the laws of the land. It's literally telling your cell programmatically what to do. And APOE4, interestingly, is setting the program toward a more pro-inflammatory program. So it's saying, aha, you're going to use the resources of your cell uh, for defense and less for recycling and things like that. So if you're APOE3, you're actually not so good at living through things like highly inflammatory uh, times, things like that. And I, you know, this really brings us back to COVID-19, uh, where we're all finding that many of the same things that we're studying for Alzheimer's, the insulin resistance, the immune status, the inflammation, these, where we see them in 30 or 40 years for Alzheimer's, COVID-19 is compressing these into a few weeks. So, it, you know, it's important not to be insulin resistant for Alzheimer's, but it's important also not to be insulin resistant because of your ability to survive COVID-19. And we're seeing this again and again and again. Obesity, type 2 diabetes, leaky gut, all of these things. So it's going to be important ultimately to know. My guess is that the people who are APOE4 positive may turn out to be more resistant, prevent them from getting infected uh, with SARS-CoV-2 because that's what they're good at. They have a pro-inflammatory state. Now, on the other hand, the other side of this, if they do get infected, they may be more on the cytokine storm side. Right. You know, we won't know for a while. Mm -hmm. But the bottom line here is you have a more pro-inflammatory state. And when we looked at those 1,700 promoters that we could find in the nucleus, you could not tell a better story for Alzheimer's. It has to do with a pro-inflammatory state. It has to do with glucose metabolism. It has to do with neurotrophins. It has to do with microtubule disassembly. So in fact, your APOE4 is setting up your cells to resist the various pathogens and toxins, but in so doing, to have a slow downsizing of the network. Whereas APOE3, you're at greater risk for pathogens. So for example, if you live in squalid conditions, you are at greater risk being to have an APOE3. And by the way, you're also, the type 3s are often APOE3s. You're not dealing with some of the pathogens and toxins as well. So, you know, it's a trade-off. You know, are you going to put your money into guns or are you going to put your money into, uh, instead of protecting yourself, uh, into recycling and things like that. And that's the difference between the APOE4 and the APOE3. It's not that one is better or worse than the other. It's that they are different mechanisms that we have. And therefore, the good news, we checked this early, you can have an appropriate program for your genetics to give you the minimum likelihood of developing Alzheimer's. So APOE4, yes, it's a, it's a lipid-carrying protein that also is a transcription factor that enters your nucleus and changes the way you produce different proteins. Oh, there's so many places I want to go. Um, 
I want to talk about antagonistic pleiotropy and I want to talk about SARS-CoV-2. So let's, let's just pause on SARS-CoV. I read a paper, uh, I can't remember now, a week or two ago around one of the early signs of it is loss of smell. Yes. But what that tells me is that it has the ability to invade the central nervous system. It has the ability to invade the brain, either through the olfactory mucosa, getting through the plate, you know, do you have any, is there any evidence around that? Is there any, what do we know about some of the neurological complications with SARS-CoV-2? Huge area. And in fact, it's a, it's a growing area. It, it, does, uh, it does affect the nervous system, multiple things. Let me just say, uh, before we start though, uh, we've, we've all heard so much negative. Uh, the response is poor. Uh, it was made in somebody's lab and it's killing people. Uh, you know, that's um, the the drugs don't work. You know, on and on and on and on. Let's just start by saying, people haven't pointed out enough. This is a huge global success story. We had a very similar a hundred years ago, as you know, with the Spanish flu, this very similar phenomenon, a pandemic that affected 500 million people with a mortality rate somewhere 10 to 20%. The estimates are between 50 million and 100 million people died because of the influenza, the H1N1. With this COVID-19, we will end up somewhere less than 1% of that. The sequence was determined very quickly. Um, it was out there. We knew that people were shedding very quickly. I mean, look at the response in the various places. People sheltered in place, social distancing very quickly. As you know, with Spanish flu, there were two waves because people came out and said, oh, it's okay. And then they, the whole, there was a whole wave in the fall after they came out in the summer. So you have to say, and yes, for anyone who's lost a loved one, that's little consolation. It has been horrible. But the reality is it could have been a hundred times worse. And we know that from what happened 100 years ago. So thank goodness for the tremendous researchers, the tremendous people on the front lines, and the entire world that stayed with social distancing, stayed with appropriate hand washing, did the right things. It really has been a tremendous global effort. Now, as you mentioned, some of the manifestations are indeed neurological. And this is a concern because, as you know, um, after a, an encephalitis that occurred 100 years ago, one that actually came at the same time as influenza, but turned out to be due to a different virus, um, we had a lot of Parkinson's. And so the, one of the big questions, are people who get infected with COVID-19, with the SARS-CoV-2 and get COVID-19, are they at increased risk for Alzheimer's? We don't know yet, but there is a significant concern that they may be at increased risk for future brain disease. Here are the things you can get from it. So you can get an acute necrotizing encephalomyelitis. That's been reported. Guillain-Barre, headaches, uh, literally an on Dean's curse. You can have trouble with falling asleep and breathing so that you have to have uh, support for your breathing. Myalgias, uh, tremendous fatigue, poor response to hypoxic drive. Uh, you can have trigeminal neuralgia. So the reality is there are all sorts of neurological conditions. And as you know, the ones known best, uh, anosmia, loss of sense of smell, and agusia, loss of sense of taste. Mm -hmm. So yes, this virus, although predominantly, you know, it is from the family of cold viruses. Uh, when you get a standard cold, that's either a rhinovirus or a coronavirus. And there are seven coronaviruses that affect humans. 
four of them give you colds, one gives you SARS, one gives you MERS, and one gives you COVID-19. So this is from the cold family of viruses, but obviously much more malignant. Uh, so it, although yes, it does mainly give you problems with your respiration, with your lungs, giving you a bilateral and essentially pneumonia and viral pneumonia, pneumonitis, uh, it does get into your nervous system, uh, at least in some people, as you indicated, uh, and it can give you those sorts of symptoms, loss of sense of, of smell and things like that. As you know, it often avoids the typical cold things. It's not giving you typically sneezing and a runny nose and things like that. It's more about fevers, uh, breathing, loss of sense of smell, loss of sense of taste, and then just this tremendous, tremendous fatigue. And of course, the biggest problem has been that it's unlike SARS and MERS, where you don't shed when you're asymptomatic. With SARS-CoV-2, you shed all over the place before you're symptomatic, while you're symptomatic, and for at least several days after you're symptomatic. Mm -hmm. So that's the problem. So incredibly contagious. And to your point, you know, a, a lot of the, and, and it's not all because of course there's ex exceptions to every rule, but a lot of the people who have succumbed to this, unfortunately, have had comorbidities like obesity that are pro, in, that are already in a state of, of inflammation. So circling back to APOE4, when we think about if it's, if it, 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 it almost gives you, I, 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 maybe you can comment on this, it almost feels like it almost gives you a bit of an edge. <laughs> uh, it, it almost gives you a bit of an advantage there because you are already uh, in a state a little bit more of, of that, you know, NF-kappa B pathway has already been activated. Uh, and maybe that gives you a bit more resilience in someone who is uh, an APOE3 or a 3-3 uh, who may respond or who doesn't have the uh, the grit, maybe, is the word I'm looking for, like the, the, the grit that someone with APOE4 does. Yeah, it's a good point. APOE4 is a more pro-inflammatory. So again, an advantage on one side, a disadvantage on the other side. Yeah. And by the way, that's the reason that functional medicine, integrative medicine, is all about resilience and improving your insulin sensitivity, improving your immune status, all these things. This is why uh, this is going to help you not only prevent Alzheimer's, not only prevent type 2 diabetes, but prevent a poor outcome from the next pandemic or from the current pandemic. Mm -hmm. So this is a, you know, this is a critical thing. And this is why, uh, the, the, you know, this is why all of us should be doing the right things and why the same right things for Alzheimer's are the right things for COVID-19. Yeah. And as it relates to, I just wanted to bring this this point up. So, you know, some people I've had people ask me in the past, well, why would this, you know, if this allele is so detrimental later in life, why does it even exist? And this is, you know, kind of coming back to that idea of anta antagonistic pleiotropy, at least for women. And maybe you can comment on other examples of this. But there's been a couple of papers that have been that have been published around women with one copy of the E4 yeah. allele having a higher mean luteal progesterone level. So of course, and that means that confers, you know, more fertility, right? So they have a higher chance of becoming pregnant, being able to maintain the pregnancy and, and you know, deliver the child and deliver the offspring. And that's how that, that's how that allele continues to propagate, right? Not that I want to blame women. I mean, we're blamed for enough as it is, but do you see other examples of you know, the APOE4 conferring a benefit earlier on in life, like increased fertility in women, 
where it comes back to nip you in the bud later on with faulty lipid metabolism. Yeah, it's a really good point. And I should mention, you know, there are several dozen uh, genes that are associated with Alzheimer's risk. It's just that APOE is, is the most common one for this, right. and it has a huge impact on your risk for Alzheimer's disease, as I mentioned earlier. So uh, again, it's not about that one's better or that. So it is a fascinating history. Uh, as you know, between five and seven million years ago, the first hominids appeared, right? And, they, and the simians don't have APOE4, but the primordial, the original one in hominids uh, does is APOE4. It was the original. So in fact, for 96% of our evolution as hominids, since the first ones appeared, we were all APOE4-4. That's all there was. It's only been in the last 220,000 years where APOE3 appeared, and then in the last 80,000 years where APOE2 appeared. And so, uh, where now the APOE4 is less common, as I mentioned, you know, three, three quarters of people don't have it. So there has been some selection over time. But what happens is if you live, for example, the great example, Chimane Indians who are in Bolivia, they are living in squalid third world conditions. The vast majority of them have uh, intestinal parasites, for example. And there is an advantage conferred by APOE4. And in fact, the ones who are APOE4 positive live longer, stay smarter than the ones who are APOE4 negative. So they, again, they have that ability. And this, was, this uh, issue was first suggested by Professor Tuck Finch uh, out of USC. And I think Tuck is right that the, this is something where giving this pro-inflammatory state was an advantage to our distant ancestors. And it wasn't until we could get away from this constant inflammation that in fact, we started seeing more of the APOE3 where in fact, uh, you, you, know, you have some advantage in terms of longevity. So in the United States, for example, on average, you live a couple of years longer if you are APOE4 negative. But again, it's a, it's a small difference. Uh, and again, you, you, know, you, can, you can change the way you live and, and reverse that. So, uh, so yes, the, the, it's exactly what you said, antagonistic pleiotropy. You are preventing yourself, as Tuck said, uh, you come down out of the trees, the hominids, what are they doing? They're, they're puncturing their feet, they're walking on the savanna, they're getting inflamed by things they step on, they're eating meat that has live microbes in it, and so for these sorts of things, you know, you're fighting with your brethren over food, you're fighting with your, uh, you know, you're fighting with your potential food. Um, and then of course you're going days without food. And so another thing that APOE4 does is allow you to absorb fat better. So there are advantages when you're young to having APOE4, especially in these squalid conditions. So it is truly an example of antagonistic pleiotropy. Advantage when you're young, disadvantage as you're getting older. Let's talk a little bit about your protocol for Alzheimer's, your Keto Flex uh, 12.3. I think that I was saying to you in the pre-chat, I am a really big, I'm a, I'm a ketogenic girl. Like I love the keto diet. I think that its applications are, can be therapeutic uh, and there's ways that we can nuance it so that someone can continue to come back to it over time to reap the benefits of it. But I would love for you to explain your protocol, how it applies uh, in, in, an Alz in, in Alzheimer's and in the types of classifications that we've been discussing. 
Yeah, so again, the bottom line is you don't get this disease for no reason, um, but typically you get it for multiple reasons. And we typically identify 10 to 25 different contributors for most people. So when we were back doing the biochemistry of this, looking at, okay, what are all the things that change this signaling in your synaptic structure? And we found, ah, oh, there are things that are inflammatory and all these different things that can change it. Then we realized, okay, you have to look. It is root cause medicine, right? We have to look. What is it that's driving? We know when someone comes in with cognitive decline, we know a priori they're on the wrong side of that balance. So we need to discover why. So we measure all these different things. We measure your hormone status and your inflammation status and your, your gut leakiness and, and all the things that contribute to that change. And then we use a personalized, and we actually uh, wrote a, a, a computer-based algorithm that goes through this and looks at all the different things and says, okay, here's your major subtype, here's your minor subtype, here are the things in your case that are driving your cognitive decline or your risk for cognitive decline, and we call this recode program, so this is reversal of cognitive decline. And it looks at all these different things and then designs for each person a program. And so yes, <clears throat> no surprise, when you're going to change your neurochemistry, and remember that you know, these people were 100% were dying you know, prior to this approach, you're saying, okay, we're gonna give you a drug, it's not gonna work very well, and your prognosis is very poor. So we were looking at anything we could possibly do to change that. And so when we started to realize, aha, there are all these different factors that, that will all impact on your APP signaling, we then proposed the first trial, this is back in 2011, proposed the first trial that was a comprehensive trial for cognitive decline. And interestingly, the IRBs would not allow us to do the trial because they said it's more, you know, it's more than one variable. You're looking at more than one thing. We said, yeah, well, that's the whole point. Alzheimer's is about more than one thing. And by the way, we got turned down again in 2018. We finally, in 2019, got the IRB to allow us to do a trial with multiple variables. And we're in the midst of that trial now and should be published next year, should be finished at the end of uh, 2020. So <clears throat> no surprise, this involves appropriate diet. To get best outcomes, you do need to get into ketosis. It's a plant-rich, uh, uh, we call it KetoFlex 12.3 because it's mildly ketotic, it's flexitarian, it induces metabolic flexibility, and it's KetoFlex 12.3 because, <clears throat> excuse me, you have a minimum of 12 hours of fasting. If you're an APOE4 positive, you want maybe 14 to 16 hours of fasting to allow you to have some autophagy and allow you to help you to get into ketosis. Um, so you want to have the appropriate diet, you want to have appropriate exercise, and that is exercise both for strength training, which improves your insulin sensitivity, as well as aerobic, which improves your oxygen and your blood flow to the brain and all those things. Then you want to have appropriate sleep, and sleep is a huge issue. Many people have nocturnal oxygen desaturation, want to make sure you don't have sleep apnea, etc. It's a huge issue. And then stress management and stress reduction. If you want to shrink someone's hippocampus, just ramp up their cortisol. You'll have a nicely shrunken hippocampus very quickly. 
<laughs> so you want to uh, improve that. Um, brain training turns out to be very helpful. Uh, and then you want to optimize things and you want to detox uh, for you want to look at pathogens. If you've got specific pathogens on board, you need to treat those pathogens. An interesting study out of uh, Taiwan showed that people who treated their outbreaks of herpes simplex on their lips had a markedly reduced likelihood of going on to develop dementia as they got older. Um, so it's actually helpful. If, you're, if you've got frequent outbreaks of HSV-1 on your lip, <clears throat> treat it. And you can do that naturally, or you can do it with some very benign drugs, you know, valet, cyclovir, and things like that. Mm -hmm. And people will, will sometimes go on those for years, but you want to you want to avoid those outbreaks. Um, so treating your pathogens, treating your your uh, detox, you know, various toxins you've had exposure to, optimizing your vascular status, that sort of precision approach to the various things that are causing it is what actually reverses the problem. I love that you're talking about the ketogenic diet as a proxy for helping br for brain health. When we think about just some of the basic elements of the brain, of course, we have the myelin sheath, which is the fatty covering. You know, I always, I always joke, like your brain is just like a blob of fat with some wires in it, right? So you have like the myelin sheath, which is a fatty covering, which you, I mean, you need, you need to be eating fat. That's why I rally against these low fat diets. Yeah. Um, for when, when we're thinking about this in the context of brain aging and brain health. And the other thing, um, and I, I have a question, I have a question here. I just, I'm sort of free, uh, free floating or free, you know, I'm, 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 um, uh, there's a thought that's come to my mind here around the synapse. So when we think about cholesterol, one of the roles that it has in the brain is to protect the synaptic integrity, right? So we have the presynapse, we have the information that's transferred at the synaptic junction, and then the postsynapse takes the information and, and it's like the relay continues. If you don't have an appropriate amount of fat and cholesterol in the brain, this, these, this is going to be deg uh, degraded. And when you, you just mentioned the hippocampus, you know, you want to have a, you know, a really crappy hippocampus, just expose it to stress <laughs> over time because we know cortisol will shrink it. Mm -hmm. um, but this, I think this is also to be also true around the structural and, and functional integrity of the brain in, in and of itself, the synapse, and the way that the brain communicates through, you know, to have the, the signal be jumping from neuron to neuron. Um, so with that brain dump, um, is there a carve out for APOE4 if you have one or more alleles in terms of the types of fat that you're eating? So there's some people that say, well, you know, you should have, you should have no saturated fat if you're an E4, if you have one or more of the of the uh, of the four allele, and then there's others that are like it doesn't really matter. Where where do you stand on this, or is this something that your algorithm, or based on you know the nuances of the the patient is coming to, or is there a, a line in the sand that you draw around that? It's a great point, actually. And yes, if you are APOE4 positive, you do have an increased risk for cardiovascular disease as well. It's not as much of an increased risk as you have for Alzheimer's, but there is some. Interestingly. Uh, what's been shown is you don't have that risk if you're insulin sensitive. So it's really this combination mm -hmm. of being APOE4 positive and having insulin resistance. That's the bad problem. That's why you, you really want to know your triglyceride to HDL ratio, and you really want to know your HOMA IR, for example. So the bottom line is look at your LDL particle number 
and try to keep it below uh, 1200 or so. You know, as, as long as you're in that kind of 800 to 1200 range with your LDL particle number, or if you like, if you prefer, you know, you look at your oxidized LDL or small dense LDL, however you like to do it, that is critical. And so, yes, we want to get the best of both worlds. So when you're starting, you've already had some cognitive decline. You need that energy. You need that neural network. You need the, the flow and you need the energetics provided by the ketones. And the quickest way to get the ketones is to take some things like, uh, you know, MCT oil uh, or to take exogenous ketones. So what I usually recommend is if, there, if you have any cardiovascular issues, take some exogenous ketones, ketone salts or ketone esters. That's not such a problem. If you don't, you can use MCT oil as others do. Now in the long run, we want to switch you over to endogenous ketosis. But here's the problem. If you start at the very beginning, you get rid of, now you're getting rid of your simple carbs. You're having a high fat, low carbohydrate diet, but you're not yet ready for that. You can't generate those ketones. You can't use the ketones yet. Now you're in a bad situation where you're not getting energy from carbs or fats. What we want to do is, in the long run, hand it off from the carbs to the fats because the carbs are now killing you. We want you to get your energy more from the fats because that's what your mitochondria are going to function better with. That's what your brain is going to function better with. But again, there's a transition period. So at the beginning, just get, make sure you've got the energy. Then, and that, that may be taking some saturated fats. Then over time, you switch from saturated fats to the monounsaturates and polyunsaturates. And by the way, this approach came from APOE4.info, and I think it's a very good way to go. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's a tremendous you know, uh, sharing of information with that group. Uh, and the vast majority of them are on some version of, of this protocol. So then you, you, know, you slowly hand this off. That is that's going to reduce inflammation and things like that. So it's fine to do for some period of time some saturated fats. In the long run, you can start to switch over. But again, follow your LDL particle number. Some people will do just fine and can be on some saturated fats. Others will find that they don't do so well and they need to cut down and go more of the monounsaturates uh, and polyunsaturates, which is fine. So we said 12 is the fasting, that's your time-restricted eating where you're fasting for a minimum of 12 hours. Uh, did yeah. you describe the three on it? Uh, right, so the three is three hour minimum before going to bed. So if you go to bed at 11 p.m., you don't wanna be eating after 8 p.m. If you're going to bed at you know, 9.30, you don't wanna be eating after 6.30. You know, whatever your time is, mm -hmm. you don't wanna be eating right up until bedtime. You don't wanna have that insulin increase during the night. You don't want to be dropping your glucose down. And if you are dropping your glucose in the middle of the night, then you want to have some more fat bombs later in the day. But with whatever you do, you don't want to be eating three hours before bed. <clears throat> and then 12, you know, 12 hours or more. So, uh, you know, you may want to go up to 14 or 16. It's more important to be in the 14 to 16 or even more if you are APOE4 positive because you have this increased fat absorption. Uh, less important if you are APOE4 negative, but you still want to get it into the 12 to 14 hour range. And is there ever a time in your program, so say someone habituates to the 12 or the 16 hour fasting window, would there ever be a time where you would recommend 
maybe a 24-hour fast or a multi-day fast, is that would you would you determine that based on severity of of the presentation, or is there is there a place for that in your program? Yes, and it's important to remember that some people are who have very low BMIs just can't fast very much, and it actually hurts them. So where we run into problems is someone who is very thin, who then is trying to fast and is losing even more weight. They will have to cycle and then get themselves so that they, they work up to this 12-hour fast. Um, the people who have, who are, that's not an issue, who may have a BMI of 26, 27, 28, they actually, it's easier for them. They actually can do more fasting. And as you know, when you, as you add more fasting, you can get things like stem cell activation, uh, probably a better senolytic effect as well, things like that. So of course, there's the fasting mimicking diet from Dr. Walter Longo. Uh, and I think that that's actually not such a bad idea for some people to go a couple of days. But in general, we, we want to do, do at least that 12-hour fast. If you want to go an extra day, see how it impacts you. Try it one time. You don't want to have so much stress that you're now hurting yourself. You don't want to be running up your cortisol too much. Some people feel better doing that. Some people don't. See also, where is your BMI? What is, you know, are you someone who has, uh, you know, uh, who has some extra fat or, or someone who actually has very little fat? You have to kind of base it on your own body type. And I would imagine, you know, the type threes or the non-amnestics who have that HPA axis dysfunction, who are probably more sensitive to stress are not going to do well with a longer, there's, you know, whenever I talk about fasting, I sort of talk about, you know, it's the type of fast, you know, the fasting mimetics, like you talked about water fasting, caloric liquid fasting, the time and how frequently you do it. So I would imagine that those type threes that you described earlier would not do well with more cortisol because fasting is a stressor. It's a tool like anything, but it also can drive up your, uh, your adrenaline and your, um, uh, your cortisol uh, levels as well. A, a longer a fast anyway. Yeah, you know, that's a really good point because they are so striking. Number one, they do very poorly with stress. We see this all the time. They'll be doing great. They'll be improving. And then they'll go like on an overnight flight and have a really stressful trip and they just crash. Yeah. So number one, you want to minimize their stress. Number two, they respond beautifully to BHRT. So the bioidentical hormones optimizing their uh, estradiol and progesterone, pregnenolone is really important for these people, and they do much better when you do that. And then, thirdly, they do much better with some significant ketosis, um, and that includes doing some exercise. So we had one person, for example, where the husband could literally tell whether the person had done exercise that day because their brain was working so much better when they did exercise from when they didn't do exercise. And could also tell, by the way, when they had taken some exogenous ketones. So these are, again, you're, you're optimizing this very complicated neural network. And these various things really do impact its function and its structure. I love that you talked about sleep because, of course, we have everyone thinks about the lymphatics as really important. But, of course, in the brain, when we're sleeping overnight, we have the glymphatics, which is... Right. I always call this like the car wash, like car wash is the brain, right? And if we're talking about getting rid of these uh, beta amyloid plaques or the, um, I guess we are trying to get ahead of the, the rate of 
formation versus the rate that we can kind of clear it out. Uh, sleep is going to be really important. Is there a ton, like a minimum number that you, um, that you recommend for people? I always say eight, you know, yeah. but is there an, a, a variation or a time that you like people to be sleeping every night? Yeah, we, we also shoot for eight hours. And of course, some people will say, I just can't do that. Yeah, seven may be okay for some people. Uh, you know, again, the reality is we weren't made to be living uh, in these blue lights at night. Um, yeah. they're, they're not, you know, we weren't made to be shutting off our melatonin late at night. Um, these things are all critical. And so, yes, we do. It's not just the, the, it's not just the quantity of eight hours, but also the quality to make sure you're not dipping your oxygenation at night, to make sure that you don't have loud sounds at night, to make sure, a lot of people like to use the blue blockers at night, um, to make sure that you have good sleep hygiene. Um, obviously, Wi-Fi is coming up as an issue. Is that a good idea that it's stimulating you all night? Mm. Probably better to shut it down at night. So there are a lot of things that you can do. And of course, many of us toss and turn all night, and we may be in bed for eight hours, but maybe only getting five hours of sleep. Uh, and so all these things are critical players in our optimum. As you mentioned, uh, when you are sleeping is the time that you are uh, on the side of removing your amyloid. And when you're awake, you're actually, you're actually making more. So we want to allow ourselves time. You want to be on the good side. All of these things are balances, just like with APP signaling. There is a critical balance. You have got to get over that threshold to get yourself going in the right direction. Uh, Dr. David Sinclair was also on the podcast and he was talking about this idea of sirtuin activation as a proxy for longevity. So you've covered actually a lot of things that we that I spoke about with him. You talked about macronutrient restriction with the ketogenic diet. And of course, we're restricting carbohydrates there. We've talked about fasting. Do yeah. you also recommend temperature extremes? So we see, I always talk about this idea of cold showers or making, you know, this uh, mitochondrial biogenesis. And like, I, I, you know, I live in Toronto. So in the wintertime, if I'm feeling sick and I know that I sound crazy, but I will go outside when it's like minus whatever it is in a tank top. And I'll try to stay out there for like five or 10 minutes so that I can start to get that certain one um, activation. How do, how do you feel about cryo or, or the opposite, which would be sauna yeah. Uh, infrared saunas or, or heat saunas. Yeah, and very good point. And, and by the way, this brings up the issues of things like, you know, resveratrol uh, and uh, nicotinamide riboside. Yeah. People have said, oh, you know, supplements are worthless uh, for, uh, you know, for cognitive decline. Well, yeah, when you don't know what you're doing, they're worthless. But <laughs> if you're actually looking at the chemistry and you're looking at how do we change this balance, they're very useful, as you know. I mean, getting if you're not treating people with cognitive decline with with optimal vitamin D, with optimal hormones, with optimal sirtuin activation, you know, on and on and on, dozens and dozens of things. We identified initially 36 different molecular factors that all impinge on this network, so they're all important. So this comes back to stress, as you mentioned earlier. You don't want to overdo it. You don't want to kill yourself with cold. But to have this hormetic effect of, of activating it, and I, I know David well, I think it's, it's, a, I think it's an excellent approach. Um, and these things are all helpful. Yes, you want to get in that sauna 
help get rid of those toxins and then use your Castile soap afterward, a non-emollient soap. And yes, you want to bring your body temperature up a little, and then you want to go just as people have done for years, you know, whether it's jumping in the snow or whether it's getting into a cold shower, whatever you like to do, that does give you that burst, that does push you, again, not not over the, you know, you want to give yourself a myocardial infarction, <laughs> but you want to get some production so that you do get that uh, response. And what's interesting, when he actually first came out with some of his work on uh, SIR-T1, he and uh, Dr. Lenny Garanti, his mentor, mm-hmm. we looked at what is uh, what, you know, what does this do to your APP signaling? And guess what? SIR-T1 increases the alpha secretase, which is the molecular scissors that cuts your APP at the good site, at the one site, and gives you the two fragments that give you more support for your synapses. So again, again and again, you can trace these direct molecular pathways into positive cognition or into negative cognition. These things are all, you know, they're not mysterious. They're things that actually do make a difference at the molecular level and with our epidemiology and with our everyday life. Wonderfully said. And and resveratrol, just as a fun little, you know, clinical pearl, is best absorbed in the presence of fat. Right. So when we're thinking about the ketogenic diet, you also want to be taking your resveratrol supplement at that time. I'm so glad you talked about supplements because I think that I don't know why this exists, but there is a poo-pooing of supplements uh, from conservative, like just from more traditional avenues. And especially when we're thinking about Alzheimer's, we want to be thinking about DHA and the zincs and the all, you know, the vitamin D that you talked about. Um, What are some supplements that you uh, typically recommend, if, if any, uh, for uh, patients that may change again based on classification. But um, are there is there sort of a minimum, uh, you know, foundational bundle that you like people to be taking? Well, so here's the thing, and, and first of all, I, I understand and I agree. And some of the people who have been so negative about that are my colleagues uh, from UCSF, uh, where I train uh, and was on the faculty. So. This idea, you know, that the there are their idea, and I think you know, there's a fair point there. There's overhyping. People say, "Oh, if you just take this one pill, you know, your brain's going to be perfect." You know, which is silly. Yeah, that, that's ridiculous. Yes. Um, but unfortunately, you know, they're throwing out the baby with the bathwater here. You know, yes, it's true. The one little pill uh, taken without regard to what's actually giving you a problem is silly. It doesn't fit the biochemistry. But on the other hand. When you identify the issues and say, ah, this person really does have some excess inflammation, not only do we want to heal their gut, um, but we want them, for example, to um, have some resolvent activity. Oh, you can, you can get that. As you mentioned, the DHA, I mean, Professor Richard Wortman from MIT spent years studying the effects of DHA, uh, uh, both omega-3s and citicoline on synapse formation. So if you want optimal synapse formation, important to optimize your DHA. So, you know, so the idea that, oh, just throw all this stuff out. No, these things are very helpful. So yeah, there are lots that, that I like. Um, absolutely the omega-3s, uh, resolvents for the time when you actually need resolution. Um, the whole coffee fruit extract that's come out that increases BDNF, very helpful. And of course, the, a good way to increase your BDNF is with exercise. Yes. So that's another good way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and then magnesium 3 and 8. Again, that came originally from Guosong Lu's work at MIT. And he's published studies showing that magnesium 3 and 8 has you know, supported 
Uh, and again, depends a little bit on, you know, on your own biochemistry, but it has been shown to improve uh, cognition. Um, of course, curcumin used for thousands of years. You can go on, uh, Bacopa, ashwagandha. Uh, all of these things have their own mechanisms. Berberine for people who are particularly uh, insulin resistant, it can be helpful. Again, you wanna start with a diet and exercise. Um, propolis is coming out, is emerging as something that has an, a nice antimicrobial and anti-inflammatory effect. So that's pretty uh, interesting one as well. Um, phosphatidylcholine, phosphatidylserine, um, these things can be helpful as well. So again, this is an area where you want to you want to know what you're doing, and you want to go after, as you said, some basics, things like omega threes that it can be good for most people. Um, although, you know, there are even exceptions to that. If you're someone who has a bleeding diathesis, someone, for example, who has uh, amyloid angiopathy and a family history of hemorrhagic stroke, then you want to be very careful with omega-3s. Um, but the bottom line is there is an entire field here that can be very, very helpful. And to ignore this just because some people came out and said, take our pill and you'll be a genius. And of course, that's, that's stupid. Um, but to ignore everything else because of that is really failing to take advantage of the most, you know, of a, of a very good thing that can be very helpful for many of us. Yeah, that's very well said. And, th and I agree with you. I think that sometimes the supplement world can be a bit of the wild, wild west. Like we have yeah. no idea, you know, quality, even just from company to company, the R&D is vastly different. So it's yeah. always, you know, my best recommendation be working with a functional medicine provider or working with someone who can be appropriately prescribing these things and the dosages even. You can't just sometimes flip the label around and just do what's on the back of the label. Sometimes you need more of a nuanced and, and customized approach to it. Absolutely. So if there's someone listening today and they're saying, okay, uh, yeah, I'm starting to have trouble calculating a tip or, uh, you know, forget walking into a room and not remembering why they walked in. Or they're like, you know what, my mom, I see my mom doing that. What would be the next one to three things you would want that? What are the next calls to action for that person? What are the next three things you would like them to do? This is a really good point. And so here's the key. We want to reduce the global burden of dementia. And for the first time, we can actually do that if people will get in as early as possible. So if you're 45 years or older, please get a cognoscopy, see where you stand. If you have any symptoms whatsoever, also get in as early as possible. And here's where you can start. You can either uh, go to your doctor. Now, many doctors will say, well, you know, we don't do, you know, we don't do this sort of testing or treatment, unfortunately. But it, you can go, li literally go online now. There is a direct to, uh, you know, so there's a direct to consumer. You can go on mycognoscopy.com, get a, the appropriate set of lab tests. It'll, it'll literally, you, there's even a um, there's even a mobile phlebotomist who can come to you to get that. Now, you know, with COVID-19, a lot of people are sheltering in place. Fine. Uh, you can wait until things have passed. That's one way to go. Um, or you can uh, or you can go in uh, with your mask on, you know, and get drawn today. So uh, mycognoscopy.com will get people started. Um, you can also go into a doctor who's been trained. So we've now trained over 1,500 physicians in 10 different countries and all over the United States to do this recode protocol. And by the way, we're also just coming up with precode, which is 
prevention of cognitive decline. So that will be available for people who are completely asymptomatic. So the next step is basically to get your testing done. Wonderful. This Doctor, this has been such a wealth of information, and I know that this is going to help everyone listening. I've learned a lot uh, in our conversation as well, and of course, I've long admired your work, which is why I wanted you uh, on the show. So I wanted to just thank you for your time. This has been wonderful. And you had mentioned in our pre-chat that you have a book coming out in what month is it? Uh, It's coming out August 18th from uh, Random House, Um, and it's the follow-up to the first book. And so after the first book, people said, uh, you know, well, you know, we want more on details. We want more about uh, where to buy things and you know, wh- what food should we buy and how should we cook it and all those sorts of things. So I actually teamed up um, with the person who started APOE4.info. So we have, as far as I know, this is the first time we have one scientist, one clinician, and we have one functional user who's actually gotten tremendous results, who's gone from 35th percentile on her cognitive testing to 98th percentile, very sharp, doing very well, and most importantly at all, sustained that now for six years. So um, there's a tremendous amount that can be done. You know, For all of us working together, uh, we can reduce the global burden of dementia. The new book is actually uh, called the, the End of Alzheimer's Program. So it's the program to go with the first book, uh, The End of Alzheimer's. Wonderful. And I will make sure that all those details are in our show notes for our listeners to check out mycognoscopy.com. And then even all the studies that we've been talking about throughout, I'll make sure that those are what referenced in the show notes for uh, everyone as well. Fantastic. Thanks very much. And thanks for all the great work you're doing. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks. Bye-bye. All right. I hope that you found that conversation enlightening. And I hope that now you have more tools in your tool belt to help your own brain and your own brain health. And for those around you that you love and that you care about. So I have a couple of action items. Uh, So if you've gotten this far in the podcast and you're still listening, you are one of my specials. So you are one of the hardcore uh, better uh, followers and fans. And for that, I will give you a secret mission should you choose to accept it. So the first is I would love for you to share this with this podcast, this episode with anybody that you think might benefit from the information. It's one thing for you to say, oh my God, I just heard all these new things and this is all the things that we're going to do. It's another thing to allow someone else to experience it either alongside with you or independently. So share this podcast with somebody that you love and to continue sharing the love, I would love to know what your takeaways were from today's podcast. I would love to know whether uh, it was the APOE4 discussion, whether it was the different types of Alzheimer's classifications, which I found uh, incredibly enlightening and, and very informative personally. What was the things that you found really useful? And you can let me know by leaving a review on wherever you listen to the podcast. So if it's on iTunes, you can leave it on iTunes. If it's on Google or it's on uh, Spotify or any other medium, I would love to hear from you and to see how I am showing up for you if you are. And of course, if you've gotten this far, if you've gotten this far in the podcast and you're still listening this far in, you are one of my special people. So uh, would love to see and ask of you to leave a review 
and potentially a five-star rating if you feel so inclined to do so. It allows other people, other special people like you to find the podcast. And then we can, like when you know better, you can do better, right? So uh, let's just make this a mission to help as many people find the podcast as possible. All right. So now you have your missions, should you choose to accept it. And I look forward to seeing the results. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. For those of you who want to continue on this week's Geeky Magic Carpet Ride with me, visit bettershow.co forward slash show notes. You'll find research, links, summary notes, musings that I prepared in preparation for the podcast. And I often throw in some of my best practices, bonuses, and links. All the juicy bits are in there for you. And now for the obligatory legal and medical disclaimer. This podcast is for general information only, and the advice recommendations we discuss do not replace medicine, chiropractic, or any other primary healthcare provider's advice, treatment, or care. In the consumption of this podcast, there is no doctor-patient relationship formed, and the use and implementation of the information discussed are at the sole discretion of the listener. The information and opinions shared on this podcast are not intended to be a substitute for primary care, diagnosis, or treatment. This episode is brought to you by yours truly, Dr. Stephanie Estima, and Leverage. Leverage handles all production, creates the images that you see on my social media, and takes out all my awkward pauses. They are my secret magic bullet. You can visit them at getleverage.com forward slash better.